Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grace Chapel. So good to see you today. We'll let the kids get out of here. There they go. I want you to listen to this quote, okay? Take this in. I love it. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. I just love that. It's been attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, so I don't know where he stood. And I, I tried to trace it because you can't trust Google and, uh, or can't trust anybody nowadays anyway. Um, I tried to trace it. I only got back to like the late 1800s, so I don't know if it is him, but I don't care. I love the quote. What do you think about that? It's pretty sweet. Now, what's more important than statements that we human beings make, no, make, no matter how powerful or popular uh, we are, what's more important than that, any of those statements, is the profound statement which Jesus once asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 15, and he said to them, who do people say that I am? And then they gave a whole bunch of answers, you know, here's, 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 here's what's going around town. And then Jesus quickly follows up with a second, way more important question. But who do you say that I am? That is life's greatest question. And your whole eternity is hanging on the correct response. C.S. Lewis once stated, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, and nowadays you can pretty much say you're anything you want to be, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You know, studying the Bible to discover who Jesus is, And what he did and what he still intends to do is something that deserves all of our lifelong pursuit. Is that your lifelong pursuit? Grace Chapel? Okay, nobody. All right, great. So, online, is that your... And then one day, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, one day we're going to see him face to face. Are you ready? Are you going to see him? Studying Christ is referred to as Christology. That's the big theological term. And we looked at last week that studying God, which is what we're doing over the summer, is referred to as theology. That's right. And today in core faith exercise training number two, we're going to ask, here we go, you ready? Did Jesus exist prior to his virgin birth? Does the Old Testament really point to Jesus? What is the incarnation, that big word? What is the biblical evidence 
that Jesus was both equally and fully God and man. What is Jesus doing right now? Inquiring minds want to know. What will his future reign look like? And those are just some of the questions we're going to try to go over this morning in about a half hour. First of all, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. The idea of eternality. I mean, like when you think about it, does your brain hurt? Mine does. That something never began, will never end, just always is. The idea of the eternality of a Messiah was stated um, in the Old Testament book as early as the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it reads, For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibility and is called, and he's given a whole bunch of names, and one of them is Everlasting Father. Everlasting. Clearly, there's something unique that is being said about this coming promised son. The son is identified for us later in the New Testament gospel record in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. We're we're told that this son is actually Jesus Christ, predicted back in Isaiah. And Matthew even quotes from a passage we're going to look at in a couple minutes, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where God speaks about a virgin bearing a son. And it's His name is Jesus. There it is. The Apostle John, whose gospel we just went through, points to the pre-existence of what he calls the Word. And John says that the Word became flesh at the very outset of his gospel. It's John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, he says, and that word became flesh. And the word clearly refers to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, also gives testimony about um, his preexistence. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we read, on the next day, this is John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one, this is the guy about who I've been saying, after me comes a man who is greater than I because he existed before me. And even John, though John is just a little bit older than Jesus, John the Baptist states that Jesus existed before him. And in a conversation with his fellow Jews, Jesus stated his own preexistence prior to his birth. In John chapter 1, verse 29, 30, Jesus had just said that he knows Abraham, like Abraham knew him, and they know each other. And so then the Judeans replied, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Like, that's 2,000 years ago, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I'm going to tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. That sums it up pretty well, right? Pre-existence of Jesus. That Jesus not only existed prior to his birth, but he also existed before all eternity passed, if you can fathom that. This means that Jesus is not a created being at all, but he is eternal God. Okay, let's look at Jesus in the Old Testament. I had that as one of the questions. Where is Jesus found in the Old Testament? Jesus says himself in the Gospel of Luke, um, 
chapter 24, verse 44. Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That law, prophets, Psalms, that's the threefold division of the entire Old Testament Scripture that you, many of you are holding in your hands right now. And it says that Jesus the Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, is written about in all three of those sections. He's written there through direct prophecy. There are passages that, that give explicit predictions. There's no doubt about it of the coming Messiah that is being fulfilled, that was fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. A good example of this is the prophecy about the virgin birth that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And um, Isaiah writes, For this reason the sovereign master himself will give you a confirming sign. Here comes the sign from God the Father. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, young woman, will, na woman, will name him Emmanuel. Well, you say, oh, awesome, but how's that Jesus? I mean, that's just an Old Testament story, right? That, that, that happened back then, and it was actually happened to a woman back then in, in, in Isaiah's time. How is that Jesus? Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 quotes that Isaiah passage as being fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Matthew 1, 23, look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And some of the direct prophecies about Jesus are still yet to be fulfilled. It all isn't over yet. There's so much more to come. At the second coming, when Jesus again returns to this planet, and he is coming back, right? Yeah, I hope it's today. And a good, I really do. And a good example of this is found in Zechariah. When, when I was first got saved, so I'm like 18 years of age, and, I, and of course, like in, in the early years, I think even in later years, you get really excited about prophecy and uh, the end times and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's always a hot topic every decade. But this was one of my favorite verses, and so you know how sick I was back then. Zechariah 14, verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go to battle, because I'm a guy and I... I unfortunately like that stuff. We'll go to battle and fight against those nations, just as he fought battles in ancient days. And on that day, listen to this, and on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, leaving a great valley. Half the mountain will move northward and the other half south southward. And you're all probably aware that that event described here has not happened yet, right? Not even close. So it's going to happen. I believe it because God's Word says it. Not only through direct prophecy, but we see Jesus revealed in the Old Testament through what is called typological prophecy. And these are, these are when Old Testament people and, and places and events that are specifically intended by God to illustrate and point forward to the coming Savior of the planet. And sometimes these prophecies are explicitly validated in the New Testament, and other times they're not. 
But a really good example, uh, one that we talk about a lot around here at Grace Chapel, is the Passover lamb sacrifice, an actual event instituted by God in, in Exodus chapter 12. The lamb had to be male, and it had to be perfect, okay? Its blood had to be applied to the doorposts of the home, and then the angel of death in that land of Egypt would pass over that household and death would not come to the firstborn. And we see that this sacrifice in Exodus points forward to the ultimate Passover sacrifice that God would accept where the penalty of death for your sin and my sin will again be passed over and death will not come. Because of Christ's blood shed for me, I will escape eternal death. How about you? Is that a guarantee? Like, do you know that for sure? Paul makes this explicit tie when he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, here it comes, what is he? Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. As Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. It's done. Then there's another one. This, this one's really amazing too. Theophanies. Jesus Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. Now, these are amazing, these theophanies. They are appearances of God himself in the Old Testament and seen by men and women. It's just amazing. And these are sometimes called Christophanies. Throwing a lot of theological words at you, but hope you hope you can handle it. And they're Christophanies when one of them, uh, by a later revelation in Scripture, makes an explicit connection to the second member of the Trinity who we learned last week when we started studying God is Jesus Christ. And one example, one of my favorites in the Old Testament, by the way, is the angel of the Lord. You come across this all through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is often equated with God himself. And the best one is in Exodus. It's chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In Exodus, um, Moses is, uh, ran away from Egypt, fearing for his life. He's out and, uh, out and about taking care of uh, sheep and cattle for uh, 40 years. And he finds himself on the mountain. And we start reading, Now Moses, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And here we go. And the angel of the Lord. There it is, right? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. Did you notice, we studied this last week, so do you remember, what does it mean when Lord is spelled capital L-O-R-D? Yahweh, that's the personal name for God. This is the angel of the Lord. This is not Adonai Lord, this is Yahweh. Then the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. I, I wouldn't do that. I would. Anyway, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord, there it is, capital L-O-R-D, saw that he turned aside, wait a minute, it was the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, and now it's just that personality is described as what? The Lord. This is Yahweh. And more, God, there's the Elohim name, came to him out of the bush, 
called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And Moses said, and, and God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The angel of the Lord in the bush is called, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and called God. So this angel, we read as you go on in the story in Exodus, also followed Israel as a cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. It's in Exodus 13 and 14 if you're taking notes. And the New Testament goes ahead and makes an allusion to this, which, which appears to specify this angel as none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2, for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, I want you to get all this stuff, that our fathers, this is a, our forefathers, the Israelites, for our, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they all were baptized, immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul is also associating here that the physical thirst-quenching water from the rock experience, remember where Moses, the people were thirsty, and he hit the rock with his staff, and the water gushed out, and they all drank their fill, that he associates that physical thirst quench to our spiritual thirst that the whole world has today and is looking everywhere for an answer, and that experience of uh, uh, our spiritual thirst is being quenched by none other, none other than Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. Okay, how about that word, incarnation? The incarnation of Christ. You hear that word when, usually? Yes, very good. Yeah, good. Awesome. You guys are you're tracking with me. Uh, we hear it every Christmas, right? So what does it mean? What does it refer to? In short, the word incarnation means in flesh. That's what it means. So, so Pete, why do they make up big words? Why don't they just say in flesh? I don't know. They got nothing else, they got nothing else to do in school. Um, in flesh, and it refers to God who is spirit taking the form of human flesh. The eternal God, the Son, took to Himself an additional nature, humanity, and God achieved this through the virgin birth. And one of the main biblical passages on the incarnation is from John chapter 1, verse 14, which I referred to earlier. Now, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. That's the incarnation. And another important passage is from Paul. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. C.S. Lewis articulated this so well, I can't do better, so here it is. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Can I say it again? The Son of God 
became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. So when you think about the incarnation, one thing you think about is it's two things. It's the humanity and it's the deity. So let's look at the humanity of Christ first. The result of the incarnation was that this, the pre-existent Christ became a man and Jesus experienced the realm of humanity. Luke 2.40 emphasizes this when Luke says, after Jesus was presented in the temple and Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. He grew and he matured and he, he, he developed just like every one of us in this room has. And, but Jesus, <laughs> while he was doing this, he had the title of son of man which is the most common way that he actually referred to himself. He had the human lineage, the genealogy, as being the son of Abraham and the son of David. As a man, Jesus was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus grew tired. He grieved to the point of tears. He was tempted, and he experienced physical death. These are all human things. And Jesus experienced humanity to its fullest. He became one of us. But there is a huge qualification that we have to make regarding Jesus Christ's humanity. While he came in the flesh, he came only in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans, Paul makes this in, point in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For God has done what the law tells you what's right and wrong and you've got to obey it or else you go to that bad place. For God has done what the law weakened by our flesh, because we can't do that, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And while Jesus was tempted in all things like you and I are, he was found, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, to be without sin. You know, in the first and second century A.D., there was a heretical movement. Actually, there were a whole bunch of heretical movements right away. As soon as the, as soon as the Scriptures started coming out through the apostles, um, there's all sorts of challenges that they had to meet. And one of these movements was known as Gnosticism, which denied that God, who is good, they got that right, could take on an actual human body, which is... Go ahead, say it. It's, this is cathartic. Bad, <laughs> all right? Evil, wicked, deceptive. So they thought, that, could, that can't happen. Good God, bad body. Can't happen. It's heretical. In essence, they were deniers of this teaching, this doctrine of the incarnation. And John, in one of his letters, 1 John, especially chapter 4, deals with this idea that's starting to grow. That's the humanity of Jesus. How about the deity of Jesus Christ? The second person of the Trinity is God by His very nature. Jesus has a unique identity with the Father, doesn't He? I mean, just listen to Him in John chapter 10, verse 30. The Father and I are one. John chapter 14, verse 9, the person who has seen me has seen the Father. It's amazing. 
And Jesus had the titles, as he had the titles of Son of Man in his humanity, Jesus had the titles of Son of God as well as Lord and God. He's acquainted with Yahweh, as we've already seen in the Old Testament. As God, Jesus is creator. He has the power over nature itself. He has the power over death. He forgave sin, and he rules as God. Jesus was and is the exact representation of God, inwardly and outwardly completely. Martin Luther stated, If Christ does not remain the true natural God, then we are lost. It's so important. For what good would be the suffering and death of the Lord Christ do for me if he were merely a man such as you and I are? I could die on the cross for all of you, but it's not going to do anything. It's just going to hurt. And then he would not have been able to overcome the devil. He wouldn't have been able to overcome death or sin. He would have been far too weak for them, and he would not have helped us. Jesus called people to repentance while associating with sinners. Jesus identified with humanity. He rebuked hypocritical religion. He gave sermons like like the Sermon on the Mount. He drew lessons from life like, like in the parables. Jesus gave prophecies about the future. He selected and trained and commissioned specific disciples. Jesus did miracles and Jesus revealed the Father. And he does so, so, so much more. Do you know that if you take all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you divide them up, one-third of all those Gospels together covers just the last week of Jesus' life. That's how big a deal that last week is. And Jesus clearly stated his reason for coming in the first place in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what is Jesus doing right now? Do you ever think about that? When you pray, when you talk to God? And here's a big question. When's he coming back? While many people like to focus on what Jesus did at his first coming and look forward to what he's going to do at his second coming, Jesus is not inactive. He's not off on vacation right now in between, you know, uh, not, not doing anything in our present age. God the Father has given God the Son a, a role and a ministry uh, that's specifically, specifically for Him, and guess what? For us. He's the head of His body. And what is His body? Yeah, you, <laughs> me, those of us who know and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're His body on earth. Wow, if that doesn't give you a sense of responsibility. And he's directing the activities of his body, the church. Paul teaches us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. There it is. Jesus Christ is the high priest between God and man. He's interceding in prayer on your behalf and my behalf right now. That's what he's doing right now. Hebrews 7, 25. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Robert Murray McShane once stated, I love this, if I could hear Christ praying for me 
in the next room, if I could hear that going on, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me right now. I wonder what he's praying for you right now. And Jesus is coming back. His return occurs in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. I know what some of you are thinking, but hang on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 goes along with that, verses 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's good, right? But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality, if we're going to do this eternity thing with God. And both of these passages are understood by believers to be either one of two things. And where you fall is just your position at present. Either it's a part of the second coming when Jesus judges the wickedness of this world, which is why he's coming back. Or there are many who believe it's a separate event that happens just seven years prior to that second coming, which is called the rapture. Yeah, that's where that word comes from. Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming. It's all about judgment. The first coming was all about salvation. The second coming is all about judgment. And John writes in, John, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, And then I saw heaven open, and here came a white horse. And the one riding on it was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. And after Jesus comes back to earth, we read that he's going to set up his rule. He's going to sit on his throne, and it's going to last a thousand years. And we read that in Revelation chapter 20, and Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So so what do you say about Jesus? That was the question he asked the disciples. It's the question I'm asking you right now. What do you say about Jesus? How about amazing? (laughs) Would that be good? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David. He's the Word, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, the Bread of Life the light of the world. He's judge. He's prophet, priest, and king. He's king of kings, and he's Lord of lords, and way, way, way more. 
As John stated in John 21, verse 25, if everything that Jesus said and did were recorded, there would not be enough books in the world to contain it. What's your response? I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I think our response has to be to God. Our response comes from our heart. And in this case, it comes from our heart, and it flows out through our mouth, and and we're going to verbalize some words that are going to come up on the screen, and there's going to be music backing up those words, and we're giving it to God because He alone deserves our praise and our thanksgiving. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow before You, having considered what You say in your precious word about your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's overwhelming. We will teach and preach and meditate and thank you uh, until he comes back or you call us home. Uh, That's our calling, and we thank you for the salvation you offer. In Jesus' name, amen.